0: Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm Kirstie McGuire. I'm the executive director of PE Today, we're going to interview Kelly Williams, who is usually on the other side of the table here interviewing everybody. She's also the founding chair of PE Wynn. Just to give you a little bit of background on Kelly, She's a recognized leader in the alternative investment industry. She founded the Customized Fund Investment Group at the Prudential Insurance Company in 1999. CFIG was a market leader in providing customized investment solutions in private equity, real estate, and infrastructure. Kelly and her team grew that business to $30 billion in AUM. The business was moved to DLJ in 2000, and Kelly served as its managing director and group head until 2014 when she led the sale of the business and remained as its president until June of 2015 and a senior advisor from 2015 to 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Welcome to sitting on the other side of the table.
1: I'm excited to have the tables turned here.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to be the one turning the tables. So... Um, You have been a great friend to me for many years. I met you uh, when you were my boss at Credit Suisse, and I've known you to be really a champion of women um, since I met you. And you founded P.E. Win 15 years ago. Um, As everybody knows, P.E. Win is the leading group for the most senior women in private equity. Uh, P.E. Win has grown from humble beginnings to now, um, a global real force in the industry with over a thousand members. So um, quite an accomplishment for you, Kelly, and and the other founding members of PEWIN. So welcome. Um, my first question for you is, I know a lot of people are really interested to hear sort of about your journey. So let's start way, way back at the beginning. Um, And tell us about
1: your very first job. Well, I'm incredibly excited to be here today. and <laughs> I feel I feel like I've answered so many of these questions in my interviews to date, but we'll we'll do our best to uh, unearth some uh, let's some mix it up a little stories. We'll mix it up a little. So <laughs> uh, my very first job as as loyal listeners of the podcast will know was at Dairy Queen. Where I wore the oh-so-fashionable brown polyester pantsuit—that <laughs> was the signature look. Uh, this would have been, let's see, I would have been probably 14 or 15 when I had my first job. So this was, uh, this was in the 70s, and uh, yeah, that was that was a great a great job. I worked. My cousin got me the job. Then I got my little sister a job there. So it was you know, sort of the cool, fun hangout. We had the, you know, the typical handsome boss <laughs> that we all had crushes on. And, um, yeah. And then for the longest time I couldn't eat ice cream because once you serve ice cream all day long, you really don't want to be around it. But, um, that was the first job.
0: Okay. So how did we go from scooping ice cream to, uh, a career in private equity. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your educational career and then sort of how you moved into PE?
1: So, well, you know, the, the type of job I had and where I had it, I think, is kind of emblematic of the story. So, you know, my family on my dad's side, on William's side, has lived in the Hudson Valley of New York for over 400 years. They moved there in the early 1600s. And so, and interestingly, they all still live together. Like my entire extended family lives pretty much in a 10 mile radius of each other. Um, And I'm the first person ever to go to college in that 400 years in our direct line. And so um, it's a very, you know, we're a very close family. We watch out for each other. and I kind of was this outlier. You know, My parents were always like, where did this kid come from? Um, I knew from the time I was a little girl that I wanted to be a lawyer. People have heard me tell the story of my first contract, which, in which I negotiated for a new lunchbox <laughs> for myself and my sister Lori. And uh, I made my mom sign the contract, which she kept all these years and gave me as a gift a few years back. Uh, so I always knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, from the time I was a little kid. And so I went straight to college. I went to Union College with, you know, pretty much followed my best friend there. I didn't have anyone to give me a roadmap of where to go to college and what the right college was. So I followed my best friend to Union College, um, which is in Schenectady, New York. It's one of the oldest colleges in the country. It was uh, founded in 1795. And I went straight to law school. I went to NYU Law School Uh, straight out of college and that was like such a gosh what an awakening I mean you know what this is like you move Mm -hmm. from your town and then suddenly you're living in New York City as a young person uh, a young broke person which I think is a really right it's an interesting experience um to go to New York as a student as opposed to getting there like your first investment banking job where you actually have some money in your pocket and so I've always prided myself on the fact that I know how to live in New York as a broke person <laughs> you know I had no money at all um, and then uh, you know much past law school I hadn't really thought about the career I uh, graduated from law school and got a job at Millbank Tweed and the way it worked there that the top performing um, practice groups got to choose the incoming associates and I was chosen by the project finance group and I had no idea what project finance was but I knew I was the only woman in the group and I hated it. it was, you know, it's basically mm-hmm. financing power plants. It's not sexy at right. all. Um, but what was interesting about it was it was really complicated. You know, you had, to, you had to negotiate construction contracts. You had to do permitting. You had to arrange the financing for the plant. You had to arrange all the feedstock. You had to arrange the offtake power contracts. It was so complicated. And so once you get your mind around something like that, you feel like, well, okay, I can do anything now. If I can figure that out, I can figure out anything. And so it, it gave me a great deal of confidence, um, which I, I wouldn't say that I had. I you know I was always it's hard to imagine now, but <laughs> I didn't necessarily have that much uh, confidence. I mean, I was always you know a good performer, but um, coming out of there, I had a lot of confidence. and I moved in-house at Prudential. Uh, And interestingly, I moved in House of Prudential because I found the environment in at Millbank really kind of uh, abusive. The the guys that I were working with were really not friendly, not nice to work with. I mean, they were friendly. We were friends. But when the guy I was closest to uh, uh, in the whole practice group really treated me like crap one day, I realized like, okay, I can't I can't work with these people anymore. So, I went in house at Prue. It was a totally different experience. My boss was a woman the There were two women of color, uh two black women in my group, and my boss reported to a black man. Uh, he was the head of the asset management division uh law department and so this is nineteen ninety three and having that kind of diversity was pretty remarkable. You just didn't you didn't see yeah. that at that time. and so I really count myself lucky for having worked at a place like crew it was a it, it was and is a really special company and mm-hmm. i still have a lot of friends there and hold my time there um it, it you know i feel really lucky and it's interesting because there are a lot of people in private equity who worked at prudential jerry Harmon is one of them and she and i have reminisced mm-hmm. uh, andrea andrea hourback and i worked together there mina pacheco nazemi worked at prudential um, and I bet, you know, you can kind of go through the list and probably find lots of people who, who started their careers there. And as you noted, we started uh, CFIG in 1999. I was actually going to leave and go work for one of my clients that was uh, uh, Scythe Energies that did uh, build power plants. And Pru said, don't leave. Uh, we'll take you to the business side. And, you know, it never, it was kind of funny because I, ne- it never occurred to me that they would let me do that. And not only did they do that, and they kind of gave me a, my choice of what I wanted to do. They said, look, we're, this was when they were demutualizing. So they said, you could lead the demutualization on the legal side, or if you want to move to the business side, we'll move you over to the private equity group. I, at, by that time I had become the general counsel of the private equity group. Um, and that, you know, that was a great experience. There aren't a lot of companies these days, like Prudential, that move you around and let you experience different Mm -hmm. things. Um, But I felt really fortunate that I was able to do that. And so my job at Peru was to start private equity funds. They they were one of the first companies to do international private equity. So my first job was to start a a buyout fund in Asia in in the 90s, which no one was doing. and eventually it came time to start a fund of funds in 1999. And after a few attempts to hire teams, um, we said, look, why don't we just do it ourselves? Like, you know, we've been investing in, in private equity all these years. Prue had an amazing portfolio of private equity. I mean, they were investors in the alpha funds of Kleiner Perkins and Mayfield and right. Excel and all these legendary firms. So we put that portfolio together and uh, we went out and started the customized fund investment group when we decided to do something other people weren't doing, which was to provide customized solutions for investors and recognizing that, you know, what a high net worth individual wanted to invest in was very different than what a pension plan wanted to invest in. And so we decided to kind of do, we always said we did the things other people didn't want to do. Um, And that's, that was the, the kind of long and winding path to get to private equity. It wasn't something I ever thought of as most women, you know, we we've never even heard of it. We didn't even know what it was. Right. Right.
0: I think it's interesting how you were talking about when you first went to college, you are the first person in your family that had done that and you didn't have a roadmap. Right. But you found your way into the most lucrative area, I think, on Wall Street. Right. And I think it's just very interesting. And were you aware when you were doing it, like when you went to Prudential, where you like, this is a huge opportunity? Or were you just sort of gravitating to environments where you felt supported and empowered?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that I ever was aware of it. It wasn't sort of like a goal or I thought, gee, this was, this is a way for me to make tremendous amounts of money. Um, it, it, I don't ever think I had enough awareness of the market and I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up with that kind of money. I mean, we were very lower middle class and I didn't grow up around that. So, you know, even the wealthiest people in the town were lawyers and doctors. They weren't private equity people. They weren't kind of um, you know, titans of industry. It's interesting. Now, some of my friends or some of the people I grew up with are now running like, you know, they're, they're big billionaires. They were running mega companies. Um, but back then there was nothing <laughs> like that in Newburgh, New York. Um, and so what I found I gravitated towards was, you know, what I call my superpower, which is Problem solving. I mean, that's what I really love to do. Yeah, and I think that's why I was a good lawyer, and that's why when I moved to the business side and started a, you know, customized business, that whole business is about problem solving. It's about a client telling you, "Look, I want to get this done. I can't get an off-the-shelf solution. So, what can I do?" And I sort of gravitated towards opportunities like that, and and that's really when my skills showed through. That's when I got the most accolades and, and notice from the people around me. Um, but I can't say that it was ever, you know, that I sort of had my eyes on the prize. pre-planned. And said, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um,
0: I do think one of the key things to really encourage more women into this space is to really make them aware of what this is, because I think a lot of Young women coming out of undergrad—they know what investment banking is, but they don't necessarily know what private equity is. So I do—I think that a lot of groups are doing a lot of work to encourage that, so people understand what this—that this is a career choice. So I think it's really interesting that you just sort of fell into it. Um, yeah,
1: it's interesting. I was—I was, um, I was at natural a... evolution. Yeah. And, you know, I was at an NAIC conference one time speaking, um, about women in PE and, and one of the guys in the audience stood up and said, look, I've got daughters. How do I talk to them? How do I make them interested in this? And I said, look, you know, they probably know Jimmy Choo, right? And so they, they have a few choices. They can buy, (laughs) they can buy Jimmy Choo's and wear them. That's one option. Uh, They could be Tamara Mellon and start the company. And that's a great, you know, being an entrepreneur is a great path. Or they could be the private equity or venture investor who invests in them and sort of, you know, rides along the wave and explaining it, I think, explaining it to all children, not just women, but all children, kind of what, you know, okay, there's a thing that you love Well, guess what? Someone had the idea to make that thing. And then there was someone who believed in them and gave them the money to go out and make that happen. I don't know if you remember um, back in the day at Credit Suisse, we used to have take your sons and daughters to work day. And we, I started for our group, um, for the private equity group, our own little mini module. And what we would do is a couple of the folks who worked on our team would make up a product, uh, and I think one time it was like somebody made up a soda and somebody made up a game, and we gave all the kids Monopoly money, and we had the had the team members go out and make the pitch about how great their, you know, how great their invention was, and then we let the kids go up and put money in a little basket in front of the product that they felt, you know, the most conviction around, and that was like a little mini example of what private equity is, and I think it's. It's as simple as that, right, is start to help kids understand that if there's, you know, something you love, if you love, you know, Pokemon cards or you love Nintendo or you love Halo, you know, yeah, that's a fun game to play. But behind that is there's a person who thought of it and behind them are the people who gave them the money to go out and develop it.
0: A hundred percent. I think, you know planting the seeds so they understand what this business is. Um, and I think that happens more sort of in, you know, different socioeconomic groups than others. And that's why it's really important to talk about and, uh, have women and people of color really, uh, understand what these careers are and how, you know, they're really challenging and interesting and touch a lot of points already in your life. And I think bringing that to life for people gets them very interested in what we do. Tell me, I've heard you speak about this before, and I think you have an interesting take on it. Tell me um, moments when you were particularly aware um, of being a woman and most likely the only woman in the room. And what was that like? Uh, I, I I like I I sort of know what you're going to say, and I really like your perspective on this. So um, I'd love for you to share.
1: So, um, so I have a really um, it's a really interesting memory of of I wouldn't say it's the first time I was aware, but um, it really. Pointed example. And, and I just remembered recently another piece of that story. So it was shortly after 9 11. And I mean, like, like four or five days after 9 11, like the first time you were actually able to fly. And they had air marshals mm-hmm. on the planes. And I was going to have a meeting with an, a potential investor and um, got on the plane. And was pretty sure there was an air marshal on that plane because I remember the pilot, they couldn't tell you, but there was, there was just a weird vibe on the plane. And and you just felt like they were sending the message. Like, don't, nobody better try anything. Don't do anything. uh, Don't do anything. But I saw, and I really, I remember that experience, but I just now linked it to the fact that this was the meeting I was going to. So I was going um, to pitch, it was a nonprofit, um, an endowment or foundation, I guess. And uh, there was a woman who was in charge. And I walked in with my my business partner, who was a male. And she was the first one to say to me, you were the first woman I have ever seen in a meeting with someone uh, about private equity. And she was really struck by that. And it's struck enough that the words actually came out of her mouth. You know, it was like right. a spontaneous utterance. Like, I'm sure she didn't really think about it. She just said it out loud um, and that's when i realized that you know so many of us are like unicorns when we walk in the room and even more so when we talk because a lot of times people will bring a woman <laughs> if they think there's you know there's a sensitivity around it but she's you know she's window dressing she's not really there to lead a discussion substantively and so right. exactly yeah so what i what i've learned is i i use that to my advantage because people do notice if you're a woman and you're in the room, they certainly don't expect you to speak. And oh my word, if you speak and you're in command and you know what you're talking about. um, And I always say, you know, if you want to know what happened at a meeting, ask the woman because she actually sits there and listens to what everybody says. Instead of thinking of the next clever thing she's going to say or stealing someone else's thought. (laughs) And so, um, yeah. So, so I um, I use that to my advantage. I change the the timbre of my voice. I speak maybe just a little bit louder, and so people sit up and take notice. Um, and I've always found it it's a great advantage to be a woman, and especially you know if you're the only woman in the room. Uh, but if you're not the only woman in the room, if there's another woman on the other side of the table, the ability to connect with that woman is a great thing. And you know one of the things that is the basis of PE win is really this idea of sharing your power with other women. And some people think, well, I don't have any power. Everybody's got power. Even if you have a little modicum of power, everybody's got some. And one of the things I would make a point of doing is if, you know, as the head of my group, I didn't meet with every fund manager who came to the office. I had staff, you know, I had teams to do that. But if, a e. Win member called, you know, somebody who was a marketing person or it was a woman leading a fund and I took the meeting. I made a point to let the men in the room the, know that I, they got that meeting with me because of that woman and that I That's wouldn't right. normally have sat in on the meeting unless she had been there. And I can't tell you how many times women would call me afterwards and say, you can't imagine <laughs> the impact that had. But that's, that's what I mean when saying you, you may feel like you don't have a lot of power, but even just acknowledging that you're taking this meeting because this woman asked you to, her stock goes up in her firm when that happens. That's right. And so, um, so that's why I think, you know, using that only woman in the room to your advantage every time.
0: I It's very powerful.
1: And I think... Uh,
0: you can't underestimate just like you said, how much of a difference you can make just by paying it forward. So, um, I'm sure you've had, there's a lot of high points in your career, but if you had to pick one or two, what would you say a high point in your career has been?
1: Um, I would say high points in my career Would be, you know, the work that I did around investing in diverse managers is is probably the most meaningful work. It's rare in a career on Wall Street that you get to match up, you know, your career and your values. (laughs) That's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. And so I felt really fortunate that I got to work with incredible clients who had a real commitment to making a difference and making an impact and allowed us to move a tremendous amount of money uh, into into funds that were um, managed by women and, and people of color. And so I would say that's the high point of my career. That's the thing I'm probably most well known for, even though it was a small percentage of the capital that we managed. Um, it's, it's probably the thing that made the most impact. And... So and I certainly the recognition that I got from the organizations that are near and dear to my heart like Twigo and SEO and NAIC and NAA and AIM, uh, WAVE, um, you know, being recognized by those organizations that mean so much to you and that, you know, it, it's like such a joy to, to give them your time and your treasure. Um, you don't necessarily expect to be recognized by them. That that certainly was, was and has been a high point for me. I would say the other high point has been, um, you know, looking at people whom I've backed managers that I've backed and definitely, and and, and, you know, not just seeing them succeed, but honestly getting a big check from them, you know, having them (laughs) like not, you know, not just make you money, but like make you lots of money. That I mean the joy that comes from that, obviously everybody wants to make money from their investments, but you know, to see people like Robert Smith and you know, Jose Feliciano and you know Stefan Kaluzny and Frank Baker knock the cover off the ball, and then to turn right. around and see Adela Lima and and um, you know Suzanne Yun and Lynn Chow O'Keefe and Holly Haynes and you know Jerry Harmon and I mean it just warms your heart right like that to me to say to see you know to make a bet like that and then see people just knock the cover off the ball and really succeed yeah yeah and really prove the case that it's all about for for a people chance. like us who are allocators it's all about increasing the the opportunities for your portfolio to perform and if you're not looking at women people of color you're not doing your job you know that you're you're like that's right you're sub-optimizing your outcomes so i have to say you know i still remember you know getting a big check from suzanne Yoon and just thinking oh man you know I love to be right, but when you get to be right that way, that's a really special thing.
0: That's great. That's great. We would like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Tell me... (laughs) Tell me a really fun or creative moment
1: from your career. A really fun or creative moment. I have to say, you know, starting the um, the Emerging Managers Conference was really fun and creative. That That was something I loved doing. And, you know, when it was part of my business, we would move it around every year to a different city. We wanted to move it to places where our clients were because it was not about... Right. glorifying our firm it was about glorifying the clients and the things they were doing so you know we did it in Michigan and California and North Carolina and Texas and you know we we wanted to do it in the places where the LPs were really making an impact um and uh and so that was that was really important to us and i you know i loved doing that i loved finding ways to showcase managers that to me that was you know a really creative thing i would say the other thing that i You know, this gets back to my kind of uh, loving to be a problem solver. During the Obama administration, um, myself and Mina Pacheco worked closely with the Small Business Administration to figure out a way to make investments that were targeted at states, which historically you were not allowed to do, but because we were in the global financial crisis, the Obama administration allowed that and so we designed the very first one we worked with the SBA and did one for the state of Michigan that has been hugely successful and I was really proud of that because so many people yeah, that's including fantastic. the SBA didn't think we could do it and we not only did we do it we had to bring multiple investors in so we had to bring not just you know the pension plans but we brought some of the um the corporate plans in some of the foundations and endowments. And it turned out to be a terrific investment for them, and it's something that the SBA ended up holding up as you know an example of of how this could be done. Um, I would say one of the more fun things, you know, obviously PE win has been phenomenal, and we've done so many fun things. Um, you know, often, well, at the steering committee meetings, we often reminisce about our very first steering committee meeting where we went to a hotel in Terrytown, New York. If, so lest you think these are, 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 are glamorous, the very first one was a hotel in Terrytown, <laughs> New York. And the funniest thing was we were meeting, and, you know, back at the time, the steering committee was not that big. I think it was like 20 of us. And uh, the uh, fire alarm went off. And so we all ran outside into the parking lot, and there was a wedding going on. And so we saw these men go running out into the parking lot and they ran to the far reaches of the parking lot. They didn't just come out the front door. They ran to the other side of the parking lot in their tuxedos. And we were like, that's weird. Like, you know, why, why are they going way over there? Well, we soon found out because next came the bridesmaids and the bride screaming, like screaming bloody murder because the bride's dress was covered with sludge. And she had hung her dress on a drain pipe in the room for the photographer to take a picture of it. And now we had we all had these drain pipes in a room that said, do not hang anything on here because it let, set off the sprinkler system. <laughs> and so this woman had black sludge all over this dress and the mother and the, oh. and the and they were screaming at each other. So that's why the men ran to the other side of the parking lot. But that was very memorable. We could not believe that we were, <laughs> we were standing there <laughs> seeing that happen. Um and so that was a particularly fun one ah, and funny one. That's a pretty bonding it, moment. It was a very bonding moment. We all continue to laugh about it all these <laughs> years hence. Um, and then I, you know, I I really loved innovating our uh, PE win pajama party, which of course we did at the Women's Private Equity yeah. Summit right before COVID. We, you know, that was the last one we did, and so we really haven't been able to do it again since then. We we clearly will, but um, I just thought it was funny since. You know, the guys think when we get together we braid each other's hair and tell ghost stories anyway. So I said, Well, let's why not have a <laughs> pajama party? And that little it. they don't they don't they don't have to know what we really talk about and that you know what that we're drinking tequila, but um yeah, so stay tuned. We'll definitely be doing those again. I've attended a
0: few of those and enjoyed them. Um okay, so we've talked about all of the high points, happy moments. Let's talk about, um, some of the more challenging aspects, um, which, you know, are often very much the reality on wall street. So, um, you know, maybe you can share, uh, some moments or some things that have been particularly challenging for you and, um, you know what they taught you, and sort of how you came through those, those challenging times.
1: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's so many of them, and I think, <laughs> I, I think, and just so many. Um, but I think what so a couple things. One is when you, when you are a woman in charge or a woman in a senior position, yeah, you have to keep your armor on all the time. And this is, again, another reason why we founded P.E. Win because we wanted there to be a place where you could go and be vulnerable and you could have conversations when you're in crisis um, with other women who understand what's going on. Because it is a very unique thing to be a woman in power in the private equity world. And it um, elicits very unique responses from men, because men are, men, you know, men are wonderful. I've had many men in my life who've been my, um, my mentors and my supporters, but something happens when you become a man's boss or when, you you know, when you become their peer or their boss, they don't quite know. They, the men don't really know how to compete with women. They often have a hard time reporting to women and god help you if you're a successful woman a woman and like if you start running circles around them then they really don't know what to do and so that really makes people behave in, in unusual ways and uh, i would just say you know i understand as well as anybody what it is to be relentlessly bullied in a corporate setting and it, it, that is one of those unique responses that I experienced um, because I was a powerful woman and I wasn't willing to back down and men who I worked with were very threatened by that and they wanted to find every way possible to remove that power from me and I wouldn't let it happen and but the bullying was relentless and felt like an near-death experience often and so for women who are experiencing that or who have, I understand it very well. I certainly think I have PTSD from it. I'm sure many women do. I mean, there are certain buildings I don't even like walking past in New York because of what happened there. Uh, There are certain cities in America, (laughs) even states that I don't want to go back to because like really bad things happened there. And so I get it. I, I totally understand it. And that's, that's the thing. You see women. I'm sure so many women saw me and say, wow, she's one of the most powerful women, women in, in our country. industry. She runs $30 billion. She's you know, got all these clients. She's made all this money. And, you know, I was still like getting beaten down. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody, which is why it's important to me that more women step out and start their own firm. And that doesn't mean you're going to be insulated from right. this. It doesn't mean you're not going to have partners even female partners who try to take things away from you. Um, But you certainly have the opportunity to create a culture that better allows not just yourself, but the people around you, including the men around you to succeed and to be authentic humans who don't feel the need to do that kind of stuff and realize that they're going to be recognized um, without having to take somebody else's, um, you know, steal the flame from someone else. So, you know, I guess what I've learned from this is that nothing's ever as bad as you think it is. Um, I can remember (laughs) situations where I thought it was the end of the world and it, it never was, you know? And, you know, my husband would always say to me, just remember living well is the best revenge. And so... It's I live true. very well. <laughs> I live very well. I don't deny my thing, myself a lot of things. Um, I try to be very generous with, with great good fortune that I've had. I, You know, I like having my family around and, you know, I make sure wherever I am that my mom and dad and my sister and my niece and nephew, and all their kids are around me. Um, and so, you know, to me, the most important thing that women need to understand when they facing these challenges is that in many ways you're facing them because the men are more afraid of you than you are of them. And, uh, I, you know, ultimately I think men realize that when women are in power, um, when women are in power, it really changes the paradigm for everybody. And that is, you know, that's very disruptive, but, um, you know, y- you will make it through. You will make it through. Take a breath, call a friend, have a drink, whatever, whatever you need. It's really never as bad as you think it is.
0: I, I can remember <clears throat> talking about this with you at different times. And, um, I think one of the ways that you described it is, you know, death by a thousand cuts, basically that you know, just the the grind and the the constancy of, of what you're dealing with in those situations just starts to wear you down. And I do think uh, that's one of the most powerful things about having a, a network of other women who have been through situations like that and can counsel you and encourage you. Uh, when you're going through that. And just like you said, it's never as bad as you think it is. And, you know, the best revenge is to live well, and to be successful in your own right. So um, I think that's an excellent point. Um, okay, tell me about a moment in your life this isn't a heavy question at all, personally or professionally that changed you?
1: That changed me. Oh, um, so I mentioned that, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And there were two things that stand out for me from my college experience. One was I, I was a political science and math major and I, um, I had to do work study because, I, you know, I couldn't, couldn't really afford to go to college, so I had to have a job. Um, and I, so I worked in the political science department, and I was taking a class on foreign affairs with a guy named Charles Gotti. And he came up to me one day in the political science office, and he said, "Miss Williams, how is it that you have the highest grade in my class and you've never spoken a word? And of course, you know, I was intimidated and, you know, I was was very smart, but I was really intimidated and never raised my hand, never said anything. And so he said, I expect you in the next class to say something. So the next class we were having uh, like some special guest speaker. And so I went and got, and he was on the Council of Foreign Affairs. I went and got like old Council of Foreign Affairs journals and read them. So I'd have this really erudite question to ask. And so... Anyway, I finally asked a question. <laughs> Professor Gotti was happy, but, but that changed me. That, that, the fact that he, he noticed me that way and noticed me because I wasn't saying something and he knew I was really smart and that I had something to contribute made a difference. Um, and then the other thing was uh, I went in my junior year, I, I did a term abroad to Japan and I really wanted to go to China, but they didn't have, my, my college didn't have a term there. And so this would have been 1984, you know, Japan and China were very different places then. And again, this is one of those things where my parents were like, oh yes, dear, of course you're going to Japan, you know? <laughs> like You're not going to Japan, what are you talking about? And so I was like, no, I really am. And it, you know, part of it was I was bored, you know, i living in upstate New York, upper, you know, a middle class kid. Um, and so I went to Japan and learned what it was like to live in a country where you don't look like anyone, you don't speak the language, can't read the street signs, people point and stare at you and talk about you when you're standing right there. Um, and that, that was a really pivotal moment for me. I, it, it made me appreciate other people more. It made me realize what it's like to be different um, I came back a completely changed person. I remember taking a class, I, you know, as a math major, I was taking a, a, a computer science class, and there was this woman in my class who was, you know, kind of nerdy, a little awkward, and I made a point of, like, reaching out to her and, you know, protecting her during that class. And she was somebody I never would have talked to before. You know, I was always one of the cool kids, so I, you know, I thought I was too cool. And we became such good friends because of that and because I just knew what it was like to kind of be alone in this vast sea of people. And I think it's the thing that made me really care so deeply about diversity and realizing how important it is to find commonality with people and not focus on the differences because, you could be thrown into a situation where you're the minority, you know, we white Americans, you know, we're so complacent because we think we're always in charge, but you could be thrown into something and you've got to find that point of commonality in and in the other person. And if you don't open your heart up to be that you're going to be lost. So um, that, that really was the thing that changed me. That was the seminal moment in my life that, that changed who I was and changed the direction of my career.
0: I mean, that's amazing. And I, you know, I've heard you talk about that before and I think, you know, it's, people talk all the time about how travel is so important to grow, um, as a person and to expand your horizons. And it certainly did that for you. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for sharing all these great stories. Um, As you know, before we wrap up, we're going to do a few lightning round questions for you. So hopefully you haven't already thought about what the answers to these questions are. Um, What's a great book that you've read or listened to
1: recently? Oh my gosh. What have I been listening to recently? You know, Andrew and I listen to podcasts. We love true crime. We're like true crime junkies. If you haven't looked at, listened to bear brook murders, <laughs> listen to that one. That that's one like you listen to it. You can't even believe, uh, that it happened. Um, one that I, I read recently, very recently because I went to the Venice Biennale. Um, and I, I wanted to read a book about Venice or that took place in Venice And so I read um, City of Falling Angels, which is a John Barron book. He's the one who wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So he tends, you know, he likes to write these kind of gossipy, you know, saucy uh, stories. And it was, I loved it, it was great. And it was the perfect thing to read before going to Venice. Um, Trying to think if there's anything. Oh, I I always have a ton of stuff in my, my Kindle waiting to be read or that it's partially read. Um, but those are, those are the two most your virtual that I can think nightstand. Of. Yeah. Yeah. my vir- Exactly. Um,
0: okay. What is your cell phone wallpaper?
1: It is my great niece and nephew, uh, Teddy and Mia, yeah. and they are the, you know, the great, great joys of our lives. Um, they are, Teddy is three and a half. Mia is turning one. And, uh, we're having her birthday party next week. And they are just the cutest little things in the world. And Teddy is, you know, has a head full of blonde curls and giant blue eyes. And he is the sweetest little boy in the world. He just makes us all smile. So um, they are my cell phone <laughs> wallpaper. Uh,
0: if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? I think I know the answer.
1: Um, I think it would be interior design. Uh, you know, I'm on the board of New Mm -hmm. York school of interior design. Uh, so I'm passionate about it. Although honestly, I would hate having clients. So (laughs) I I don't know. And as you know, Kiersey, I'm having a hell of a time right now with my Uh, my home project. I was supposed to be moving in this week and my interior designer has made yet another mistake. So, um, but I, I am passionate about it. (laughs) I really, I really, um, I really love interiors. I love, um, I love to see the way people live and it's something that it's, you know, it's one of those things when you think about what are the things that you love to do when you're not working and decorating home is one of the things I'm really passionate about. You know, as you know, I, Chaired Nantucket by Design for a few years. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of am a design groupie, so I've gotten to know a lot of interior designers. I really well, admire them.
0: You know, tying in something that you said earlier, I think design, being an interior designer, is really a form of problem solving. Right? I mean, it's a form of visual problem solving. So I'm not surprised
1: that you like that aside from just the creative it is a creative outlet I think the other thing is you know I I think another key to my personal success I think people who are successful are often very good at making others comfortable and make them feel kind of welcomed and invited and I think that's Mm -hmm. part of you know being a good interior designer so I, I think but I think you're right I think it, it it definitely is problem solving because you know you've got weird dimensions or strange colors or whatever it is that you're working with and finding a way to make it all work is like solving a big puzzle
0: that's true um, are you a dog person or a cat person I will say I think you can also be both
1: I am both as you know so for years we had cats uh, Ozzy and Ella who, who were fabulous and now we have our darling little sunny and uh, yeah we like both <laughs> yep uh
0: what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given these are easy questions easy
1: um you know well there's one that i always go back to my husband doesn't like the way it's phrased but there's there's one thing that my my dad always says that I, I, I quote often, which is, um, you don't have to, uh, push a drunk man to make him fall. And it's not to make fun of people with, um, you know, addiction. And it's really more about someone who's full of themselves, whether, whatever they're full of, you know, whether Mm -hmm. they're full of hubris or whatever, you know, sometimes you think you have to push them or you have to you know, point out that this person is awful or horrible or whatever. And, you know, we've all seen it. Those people tend to fall on their own. And what I've learned in my career is that because there have been times when I've like pointed and pointed and said, oh, my God, look at what this person is doing. It's so awful. Why aren't you doing something about it? He's going to get us all in trouble. Right. What tends to happen is then people right. focus on you, right? You become the center of attention and you become that's the right. problem. And so to me, that's been really that's been really good advice is, you know, yes, of course, it's important to point out when people are doing things that are inappropriate or that are putting others at risk. But keep in mind that if you become too uh if, if it becomes the sole focus of what you do, if you're so wrapped up in it and it, you're so angered by it that you often become the, the uh, lightning rod and people stop focusing on.
0: Like, right. What they think you're the doing. problem. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I also think, um, you know, with bullying bullies, Or someone who's behaving badly, they do it with everybody. It's not personal. And if you just give them enough rope, they'll ultimately hang themselves. And it may take a while or it may not, but that's uh, definitely karma. So,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, okay, last and another very easy question. What is the one thing that we don't know about you?
1: Oh, my gosh. I I feel like I I
0: have a suggestion that you can disclose.
1: (laughs) I feel I feel like everybody <laughs> knows everything about me. Um, uh, well, maybe well maybe the newest thing people don't know is uh, we bought a house in York, South Carolina, on a lake, uh, which is near my niece and nephew and their kids, so that we could be closer to them. So that's a new thing. Um, uh, I think most people know about my uh, my infamous um, kind of the trick I played on uh, on Beth Falk and everybody at one of her conferences where we were bearing our souls and talking about things people didn't know about us. And I joked that I had been one of Tiger Woods's goddesses. Um, And the funniest (laughs) thing about that is that, you know, there, there there were a bunch of younger women who didn't really know me. And I guess apparently they were like, really? Is that, you know, is that true? (laughs) But that was a, that was a rather, a rather memorable moment. That was Um, great. Yeah, that That was, was great that was an inspired woman. Oh um, gosh, I feel like I I feel like I'm a pretty much an open book. I think people know lots about me. But what what is it that you know about me that other people don't know? Really? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to go there. <laughs> That's funny.
0: Yeah, we won't go there. I was going to disclose the Tiger Woods one cuz that was pretty good. And then I would also say that, you know, people don't really know about um, how you're such a big Star Trek fan. That's one thing, right? How you go to all those um, <laughs> conventions. So there's that. Oh, my God. And then so also um, the performance art thing. People don't know about that. So,
1: you it's know, true.
0: I really yeah. encourage you to open up and share that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll see you all at Comic-Con. Oh, my God. My husband my husband would be cracking up about that. Like, he knows I know nothing about Star Trek or Star Wars or anything with a star in it. Yeah. That's not my, that's not my gig. Well, I will
0: say this. So the backstory on that is just for the benefit of everyone is, uh, we met because I was your lawyer at Credit Suisse and I was pretty junior and, you know, you were this very powerful woman at Credit Suisse and, um, I was intimidated, but you were lovely. You would always, uh, you were really kind to me and always sort of help, you know, pull me along And I remembered that someone had told me that you were really into Star Trek. And I remember thinking like, wow, like, that's amazing. This, you know, really powerful, fashionable woman has this like sort of really quirky personality that she's really into Star Trek. And I was like, I definitely want to be friends with her. And so, you know, many years later, I think we were sitting at your house in Nantucket and I was like, yeah, so when did you first get into Star Trek? and you said to me what are you talking about I'm not into Star- I'm not into start into Star trek at all so I think somebody obviously played a big joke on me but it actually worked in our favor so
1: well you know what it could be though I mean i, I, I you know i I worked really hard when I was running my business to kind of you know use cultural references and you know, at least <laughs> at least like show people that I knew about that kind of stuff even though it wasn't a, a real focus of mine, but so I'm sure I probably made a reference to something about Star Trek and they, maybe they thought that I was a a Trekkie. I don't know, but I, yeah, that's pretty funny. That is that <laughs> definitely not me.
0: It might've been those, it might've been those pointy ears that, you know, your Spock ears that you would wear to right, work. Right, the Spock ears. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. All right. Well, that... That's a wrap, I think. Thank you so much for joining us today for Moments That Made Her. We look forward to another great episode next month. Um, thank you, Kelly, for um, all your great stories and the time and everything you've done for women in this industry. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast today, please rate us and subscribe.
1: This was great fun, Kirsty. Thank you. You, you- Did us proud. Uh, Thanks for taking the microphone and (laughs) I look forward to our next episode.
2: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is, and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PEWIN and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without PEWIN's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.